0: Well, hey man, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? And uh, Friday brought some uh, very interesting news that I want to address today. Uh, you know, a lot of people are pretty upset at Christians uh, since uh, Friday. And um, a lot of people have a hard time understanding, in particular, us Baptists. And uh, we are a peculiar bunch, aren't we? I mean, besides our proclivities for Chick-fil-A... You know, the one restaurant that we cannot actually access on Sunday. Um, Besides that, uh, we're known for something else, and uh, we have this habit of being people of the book. And that book, in case you're uh, new to this sort of thing, is the Bible. And uh, people will sort of wonder, why do you Baptists always refer to the Bible? Uh, What's the big deal about the Bible? And why do you love the Bible so much? Why do you focus on the Bible so much? Well, you have to understand that being a Baptist uh, does not make us devoted to the Bible. The Bible makes us Baptists. And I've always believed that if you have an open mind and an open Bible, uh, you'll eventually end up a Baptist. uh, Because uh, we try to do things the biblical way. Now, the reason that we rely on the Bible so much and we uh, care for and love and read and try to follow the Bible so much is because that we believe that it is the Word of God. And this is not just a belief that we've conjured up out of thin air. It's not even our belief simply because Christians all throughout history have believed that, that it is the Word of God. But the reason that we believe that the Bible is God's Word, is because that is what Jesus believed. And without getting into all of the details, Jesus believed that all of the books of the Old Testament, what uh, we would call the Hebrew Scriptures, were in fact Scripture. They were the very Word of God. And Jesus gave His apostles the authority to instruct Christians for all time the teachings that now make up the New Testament. And someone might accuse us of uh, practicing circular reasoning, you know, to say that, well, the Bible authenticates Jesus, and Jesus authenticates the Bible. It sounds like circular reasoning to me, right? Well, not exactly. If you dig a little bit deeper, and even if you uh, went on a little bit of a a journey like I did when I was was 18 years old, and I really wanted to question my faith. I had others that were questioning my faith, and and I, I came to this conclusion that truth can withstand scrutiny. And so I decided to scrutinize my own faith, being raised a Baptist, being raised a Southern Baptist. In fact, I decided it was worth my time to scrutinize my own faith. And so I looked at the scriptures as if perhaps even they were not the Word of God, but rather a collection of teachings that, uh, by people who believed that they were. But even, when you can, even if you start with that premise that the Scriptures, and let's just focus it to the New Testament, that the New Testament itself uh, were a collection of historical documents from people around the first century, you have to come to the conclusion, you have to admit, that these letters that make up the New Testament are incredibly historically reliable. And by that, what I mean is that there is no doubt that what we have in our English translations uh, is the very uh, words of what people originally wrote in Greek in the New Testament. And so we know what those New Testament human authors wrote uh, without any doubt. Um, There are literally thousands of ancient copies that can be used to check against one another. And so there's no doubt that this is the words that we read if we were able to read Greek, are actually the very words that were penned by those original human authors. And the interesting thing is this, that all of the people that wrote the New Testament, every last one of them believed and taught that Jesus rose from the grave. And this is a very important point. Because if all these ancient people in these ancient writings, and they were eyewitnesses to Jesus, believe that Jesus rose from the grave, then we have some evidence that we have to deal with. And there's no other possible conclusion that you can come to than to admit that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave. There's no other explanation that can account for the evidence. There's no other explanation that can account for the immediate change in those disciples' lives, going from fearful followers of Christ to people that were willing to lay down their lives for the very fact of saying that Jesus rose from the grave. There's no other evidence that can account for the immediate explosion of the first century church all throughout the Roman Empire. How did the church come about? How did these lives change in these disciples? And how can we otherwise explain all of the evidence? There's only one conclusion. Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave. And so once you accept that premise... That Jesus rose from the grave, then perhaps, just perhaps, he's worth listening to. No other person has had the power to raise themselves from the grave. Karl Marx is still dead. So is Carl Sagan. And so perhaps, I thought, maybe I should listen to this one person, this one person in history, who actually had the authority to rise from the grave Maybe what he believes is just of a different nature, a higher quality than what anyone else might believe. Maybe he is from God. Maybe his view of things, including his view of Scripture, is correct. And if Jesus, this one who was raised from the grave, viewed the Old Testament as God's Word, and he authorized the production of the New Testament as a continuation of God's Word, then maybe our view of the Scriptures should be the same. The Bible is the very Word of God. And insofar as you have an accurate English translation of the Bible, then you can rightfully say that what you read Is the word of God and once you believe that the Bible is the very word of God then you accept the fact that it and only it not the opinion of man but it and only it is without error totally trustworthy absolutely authoritative and completely sufficient for your life and faith now If you listen to the news, you'll hear a lot of different viewpoints from a lot of different people who have a lot of different ways of viewing the world. And this has never been more evident than this week. An endless variety of opinions have been voiced about the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And this is such a monumental event that occurred this Friday that God's Spirit arrested my, my spirit. He grabbed my attention to the need for His people to be reminded of His view of these things, which He has spoken about in His Word. You see, God is not silent about the issues facing our nation, our community, in our church, with regard to the overturn of Roe V. Wade, the Lord has spoken. And one of the things that I believe the Lord would have us understand and know is that we are to stand for life. God is pro-life, and He expects us to stand for life. Now how do I know that God is pro-life? Well, Journey with me on a little bit of a logical journey. It's a very brief one. Here we go. God created life. And if God was not pro-life, He would not have created it. End of journey. God is pro-life. And you see, God knows when human life begins. And he tells us in his word for when human life begins. Now, before we get to his word, let me just address a, a few other things, but there, because there are many people that are confused about this. They don't know when human life begins. Some people say that life doesn't begin until a child is fully born, until, it, until that child is completely out of its mother's womb. But biologically, we know that human life begins before birth, and If there's anything that we've learned from the past few years with COVID, we've been told repeatedly to trust the sciences, haven't we? Well, science tells the abortion industry a very inconvenient truth that human life begins at conception. That child that has been conceived does not have his mother's DNA. It has its own. It is a living being which finds its protection and nurture in its host, which is its mother. That child is not a cancer. It is not a growth. It is not a clump of cells. It is a being. Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, which, unlike our newest Supreme Court justice, can define what a woman is, can also define what a being is. According to Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, a being is, are you ready for this, one that exists. And if this recent uproar since Friday about the overturn of Roe v. Wade tells us anything, it is that the being inside the mother certainly exists. If that being did not exist, we would have no uproar. Nobody would be protesting something that did not exist. But the being does exist and much of the uproars from those who wish that it did not. Webster's Collegiate Dictionary also defines the word human as having human form or attributes. And so this youngest child in its mother's womb will certainly take the form of a human very soon. But even in its most infantile preborn state, it has the biological attributes of humanity. That child is not a mineral. That child is not a vegetable. That child is not a cow, a crow, or a cod. It is biologically a human being. The creation within its mother's womb. It's both a human, according to Webster, and it is a being, according to Webster. And a logical person might simply conclude that it is a human being. If that smallest of humans is indeed a human being at its smallest, then it is also a human being at nine months, it is a human being at six months, A human being at 20 weeks. A human being at 15 weeks. It is a human being at the point of viability. And it is a human being anywhere and everywhere else up the line. But now, a few minutes ago, I made the statement that God's Word tells us when human life begins, where can we find this knowledge? We find it in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1, for example. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. Here we have the God of the universe interacting with a human. Still in its mother's womb. Very famously in Psalm 139, we have a psalm of King David some 3,000 years ago who apparently knew a lot more about the preborn state than many people today. He wrote, For it was you... Who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you in secret or from from hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. And there are other scriptures that we'll get to in a moment that likewise show that a human being is created at the very moment of conception. But not God has not only told us when human life begins, He's told us something else. He's told us that a preborn child is as human as one that has been born. It is just as human. It is not semi-human. It is not partly human. It is just as human as a child that has been born. You know, sometimes people like to play word games, and I'm not talking about Scrabble or, or Wordle or anything like that. I'm talking about playing games when they're trying to twist the uh, actual meaning of something. And you just have to listen to how they talk. For example, if you listen to a woman who's very excited about uh, the prospects of giving birth, She's with child and she's excited about that. She calls that child within her, my baby. But if an abortion is planned, it's no longer a baby. It's now a fetus. It's an embryo or something else. You see, when you're going to kill something, you tend to put emotional distance between you and it. It's a safety mechanism. It's also deceptive. What many people don't realize about Roe v. Wade is that the seven justices that found in its favor actually ruled that the preborn child is neither human nor is it a person. And therefore, since it is neither human nor a person, they concluded that it is not protected by the Constitution. It is very reminiscent to me, of the Dred Scott case in which that Supreme Court ruled that slaves were not really persons and therefore they had no rights under the Constitution. Dred Scott was an immoral, unconstitutional precedent that was overturned and Roe, which is even more immoral, and even more unconstitutional is a precedent that has now rightly been overturned as well. But what again does God have to say in His Word? Where does God say that a preborn child is as human as a child that has been born? It is from the one human author who was also a physician. In Luke's Gospel... Luke chapter 1, verse 41, reads this way. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, the Greek word is brephos, leaped inside her. We remember that story, right? And then in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 2, verse 12, we read this. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby, brephos wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. This baby, same word as the baby that was within Elizabeth's womb. This baby happened to be the Lord Jesus himself. Now, not only has God told us when human life begins and that pre-born human life is as human as humans born But he's also told us that all human life is sacred. All human life is sacred. You see, in every instance in the Bible in which God allowed or condoned the death of a human being, it was because a serious crime had been committed. Sometimes the consequences of that crime extended to others, but it was nevertheless the result of a serious crime. Nowhere in Scripture does God condone the killing of a preborn child. In fact, just the opposite. In ancient Israel, if a preborn child was hurt or killed through the actions of another person, God required a penalty. Why? Because that child is made in His image. We read in Exodus 21, verses 22 and 23, or actually through 25, when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury. The one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Why must the guilty party be punished for injuring a preborn child? Because that preborn child is just as human as the guilty party. We need to be very careful that we do not fall into the trap of quality of life arguments. Sometimes people say, well, It's okay to abort the child because the quality of that child's life will be so poor. But I need you to understand that those who advocate for an arbitrary quality of life as the determining factor as to who should live and who should die, they place us on a slippery slope on which we do not want to be. History tells us where that leads. Let me give you this quote. From a quality of life proponent. He wrote the demand that defective people be prevented from from propagating equally defective offspring. Represents the most humane act of mankind. Quality of life. The author was Adolf Hitler. In Mein Kampf volume 10. Excuse me volume 1 chapter 10. It's his quote. Let me give you another quote from someone. Who argued for a quality of life as to be the determining factor of whether someone should live or die? This someone was Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. In 1939, she said, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the black population. That was her goal in creating Planned Parenthood. And unfortunately, many black babies were indeed executed because of her evil. You need to understand that the people who have murderous intentions in their hearts, genocidal intentions in their hearts, always try to win over people by appealing to quality-of-life arguments. The same demonic spirit of death that disguised itself as an angel of mercy behind a so-called quality-of-life cloak was instrumental in the murderous intentions of both Adolf Hitler and Margaret Sanger, both morally responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of souls precious in the eyes of their creator. It is an affront to the living God for any society to determine who should live and who should die solely on some arbitrary quality of life argument. Only God, has the right to take the life of an innocent person, a life that he himself has created. It is beyond our prerogative as humans to make such value judgments. If a child is born with a physical deficiency, that can be a terrible, terrible hardship. But that child should live. The Lord told Moses, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And is the Lord able to do something amazing in and through the life of a person with a disability? Absolutely. And how long would it take for us to share the stories of God doing exactly that with the people that we know? If a child is conceived as a result of rape or incest, Again, that can be a terrible hardship on the mother of that child. An unfair hardship. But the child should live. God said in Exodus 23, verse 7, Do not kill the innocent. Is the Lord able to do something amazing in and through the life of a person born as a result of rape or incest? Absolutely. Again, story after story could be shared of what God has done in and through the lives of people who were the product of violence instead of love. God is not silent about these issues. God is pro life. He wants us to stand unapologetically for life. God also wants us to speak for those who have no voice. Speak for those who have no voice. Listen, the voice of those who have been silenced are numerous. Even by the most conservative estimates. For every six Americans you meet under the age of 50, you would have met seven had it not been for Roe v. Wade. Those who have no voice are innocent. They've done nothing wrong. They're guilty of only one thing being born or being placed in the most dangerous place in America, that is their mother's womb. Those who have no voice are loved by God. We are to speak up for those who have no voice. For the justice of all who are dispossessed, Proverbs says. And I want you to know that pre-born babies are not the only ones who have no voice. Sometimes the woman who has been raped, and has, she has no voice, and we must speak for her, demanding that the righteous hammer of justice fall on the criminal who would dare do such a thing. Sometimes the woman who is the victim of human and sexual trafficking has no voice, and we must likewise speak for her, demanding justice on her behalf. Sometimes the woman who is stricken by poverty has no voice, and we must speak for her. Demanding financial liberty from the self serving politicians in DC who are destroying our economy. We must stand at the ready to provide and support whatever resources are available in our community. Sometimes the woman who has been cast out of her home by her husband or by her boyfriend or her father or mother has no voice, and we must speak for her, demanding that the necessities of life be provided. To her. You see, as the battle of, of, of abortion moves into the additional spheres of our government, we must vote for those on a national level and state level and local level who will not only stand for the lives of the pre born, but who will also provide for the public good in a manner consistent with the purposes that God has ordained government to possess. God wants us to stand for life. He wants us to speak for those who have no voice and he wants us to give him thanks for what he has done this week. Give thanks for my work, I believe he would say. You know, there are so many ways in which I do not know the mind of the Lord, but I'm thankful that he has ordained events in such a way as to have Roe v. Wade overturned as it should have been. Who but God "...could orchestrate that a president who did not know how to pronounce Second Corinthians would be able to confirm three strict constitutionalists to the U.S. Supreme Court, all of whom had a hand in overturning Roe v. Wade." "...who but God could ordain that despite Planned Parenthood being originated by a racist, the majority opinion in the reversal of Roe v. Wade was supported by a black Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas." I do not know, I cannot prove that God loves irony, but it sure seems ironic to me. We should be thankful to God for promoting and protecting the sanctity of human life in this way. Psalm 107 says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for His faithful love and His wondrous works for all humanity. For He has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. And I would caution us to be mindful that God is probably up to something much bigger in our country. And I pray that it is to the benefit of our country and not to its demise. The last time our country was this divided was just before the Civil War. Maybe things will work out differently this time. I do not know. There's one final thing that I believe that God would have us do. Now that Roe has been overturned, God says, Be merciful as I am merciful. I want to be very clear what abortion is spiritually. It is the death of of an innocent human. It is the destruction of the very image of God. For God's image is in every human. And unless done out of medical necessity, Abortion is a crime of the most serious order, a spiritual crime, of the most spirit, of the most uh, worst order. Those who participate in it, especially those who do so knowingly and willingly, are guilty before God. And yet, this sin—the sin of taking a preborn human life—is completely forgivable. This is a sin for which God. Com- provides complete healing and restoration to those who would seek it some people be it a woman who's had an abortion or be it a husband or a boyfriend or a father who's encouraged or insisted on an abortion or be it a physician who has performed a medically unnecessary abortion some people feel like their role in abortion has been unforgivable but I want you to know that God's word says otherwise. God forgave Moses, even though he killed a man. God forgave King David, even though he ordered an innocent and faithful man killed. God forgave the Apostle Paul, even though he actively supported the killing of Stephen, who was a faithful servant of Christ Jesus. And God will forgive you. How do I know? Because God says so. He does not lie. God says in Isaiah chapter 1 Come let's settle this says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red they will be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must extend mercy with our words. We must extend mercy with our actions. We must tell people of God's forgiveness. Tell them how God has forgiven you. And let them know that God will forgive them too. And as we extend mercy with our actions, we may encounter young women who need our assistance. Let us stand at the ready to provide them with what we can. Food if we have it, and we do. Shelter if we have it, and we do. A welcoming church family, if we have it, and we do. Acceptance, if we have it, and we do. Love, if we have it, and we do. Jesus told us, Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Today you may be wondering, How can God forgive me? Whatever your sin is against God. Whatever it is. How can God forgive me? You need to understand something. You need to understand what God has done. God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to us. Jesus, the very Son of God, died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the grave to give us eternal life, to make us right before God, And if we receive him, if we trust him, confess him as Lord, he will receive us unto himself and make us a part of his family. And every last one of your sins, like Isaiah said just a minute ago, will be forgiven and your stained soul will be made as white and as pure as snow.